Well, welcome today. I hope you're doing well. If you're new, my name is Jonathan. I'm uh, the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. And I want to just say a welcome to you. Glad that you're joining us today. At the end of the Apostles' letter to the church in Corinth, in, in just the second last chapter at the, before the end of that, that letter, he, he writes these words. He says this, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And then he summarizes the entire gospel in these sentences. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul, in just that short sentence, gives really the heart of the message of the gospel, that Jesus came, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that takes away, if we allow him, accept it, it takes away the sins of the world and our sins. And, and, and it is uh, what we are going to look at over these next uh, number of weeks. We're going to look at the suffering and the death of Jesus and then ultimately his resurrection. And we call that part of Jesus' life the passion of Jesus. Now, of course, in our world today, that word passion has taken on a very different meaning than it originally did. But the original meaning, that which we're going to use and which is still used by Christians around the world, the word passion in this context refers to the sufferings of Jesus. In fact, it comes from a Latin word, the word passio, which simply means to suffer. And so in this series that we're going to look at now, we're going to examine, we're going to study, we're going to look at the suffering of Jesus and his death on the cross and, and the price that he paid for us, both physically but also emotionally, as he set his heart and his mind to, to suffer and to die, to pay the price for our sins. And what we're going to see is not just the suffering of Jesus, but we're also going to see and experience something else. The incredible, beautiful, unbelievable love that Jesus has for us. A guy named Apollo Masari, he lived in the 1700s. He spent much of his life, most of his life, talking about and teaching about and thinking about the passion of Jesus. And this is what he writes. He says this, The holy sufferings of Jesus is a sea of sorrows, but it is also a sea of love. Ask the Lord to teach you to fish in this sea. Immerse yourself in it, and no matter how deeply you go, you will never reach the bottom. Allow yourself to be penetrated with love and with sorrow. That's the invitation to us as we begin this series on the passion of Jesus. Let's allow ourselves to be penetrated, not just with the sorrow that Jesus experienced, although we should, but also with the deep, deep love that he has for us. You know, no one in the ancient world taught more about love than Jesus. In fact, the, the historian John Dixon would argue that Jesus was utterly radical and really the only one in the ancient world who spoke, who, who talked about love in the way that, that is just so central to what we understand this, to this day. In fact, here, here's what he writes. He says, love certainly does not feature in any of the best known moral codes of the pagan world, Babylon, Egypt, Greece, Rome. Universal love is not there in the Proverbs of Egypt, the Code of Ham, uh, uh, sorry, the Code of Ham, Hammurabi, the Ethics of Plato and Aristotle, the 147, 147 maxims of Delphi, or the wonderful moral discourses of Seneca, Epictetus, or Plutarch. What we find instead in the Egyptian, Mesopotamian, and Greco-Roman moral teachings are things like justice, Courage, wisdom, and moderation, the four cardinal virtues of Western antiquity. 
in the ancient world. None of the moral teachings anywhere except for the Jewish scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, except for them. None of them talked about love at all. It wasn't a virtue in the ancient world. What Jesus did when he came is he took that teachings of the Jewish scriptures and he intensified them. He called for a greater love, for a deeper love, for a more profound and more universal love. Not just love those near you, not just love your neighbors, but love your enemies. And in this way, Jesus sets out this deep teaching that is so fundamental to our thinking in this day. That love is central. But Jesus' teachings were never just this sort of sentimental talk. Jesus' teachings weren't just, hey, this sounds good, this sounds kind of light and fluffy and you should try it. No, no, no. Jesus, as we're going to see, is going to live out the ultimate example of love through his sufferings and then through his death. The Apostle Paul, writing 25 years after Jesus, uh, he writes this, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what we're going to see. We are going to see in this series of sermons that we walk through now, this deep, incredible love that God has for us as demonstrated not so much in the words. Jesus hardly speaks about love formally in what we're going to look at, but in his actions, in what he does, in the suffering that he endures, and in his death. It is the ultimate picture of love towards us. Now, the way that we're going to examine that, the way we're going to learn that is through looking at the passion of Jesus as told through the eyes of one of the writers of the gospel, uh, through the gospel of Mark. If you've been uh, part of our church for the last number of years, you know that a number of years ago we started walking through the gospel of Mark. We started Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And over the last number of years, we've come to this place. And so now we're going to look at the last chapters of the gospel of Mark and explore Jesus' death and his, uh, ultimately his resurrection. So we're going to look at that from now until Easter. And so if you have your Bible, uh, I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And this is how, this is how Mark begins his account of the passion of Jesus. Here's what it says. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So Mark starts by setting, uh, telling us the setting. The setting is the Passover. Jesus and his disciples, along with basically everyone in the land of Israel, have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And they, they come to, sell, to, to Jerusalem because that's the place. That's the place where everyone comes. So that means that the city of Jerusalem, which typically in that day would have had about 50,000 people, has now swelled to over 250,000 people. The city is teeming with people. And they've come to celebrate the Passover. And, and as you know, again, if you've been walking with us over the last number of months, the Passover is a celebration, a, a national holiday, a festival set apart by God to celebrate God rescuing the people of Israel from domination by a foreign power. And of course, at the time of this celebration, Israel is dominated by the Romans, which meant that this festival was a very politically charged event. It was for good reason that the Roman governor always was looking for more reinforcements, more soldiers to be in the city of Jerusalem at this time of year because they were the dominant force over the people of Israel. 
And the men who were ultimately in charge of this celebration, the men who were tasked with leading the people of Israel in celebrating God's faithfulness and his goodness to them and how he led them out of uh, slavery in Egypt with the chief priests. But instead of being involved in this, in this incredible act of national worship, instead, these men were off in some dimly lit room plotting a murder. And they were plotting the murder of a young Jewish rabbi named Jesus who was causing them all kinds of grief, and they just felt that it wasn't worth it anymore, and so they were going to kill him. The problem that they had was that they didn't know what Jesus looked like, and they didn't know where to find Jesus in this teeming city of 250,000 people. And, and even if they did know where to find him, they didn't know how to get him when he wasn't surrounded by all these crowds, because they, they, the crowds loved Jesus, and they were worried that it would start a riot. So they had this problem. Where was Jesus? And that raises this question, so where was Jesus? What, what was going on for Jesus? And that's what Mark talks about next. Here's what he says in, the, in verse 3. He says this, And while he, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flax, flask of ointment. Where's Jesus? Well, here's where Jesus isn't. Jesus is now cutting some sort of deal with these religious leaders to escape with his life. Jesus wasn't out sort of negotiating with them a seat at the table so that he could join them in having power over the nation since he had such a following. No, nor was Jesus planning his defense against these men. He, he wasn't planning some sort of protest or preparing a, a legal defense. You know where Jesus is? Mark says Jesus is hanging out at the little town of Bethany in the home of a guy named Simon the leper. Jesus is hanging out with the last people in the entire place that the religious leaders would ever consider hanging out with them. You know what he's doing? He's having a great meal with them. He's enjoying a great glass of wine. He's laughing and talking, and he's just, he's just caring for and loving and hanging out with the people around him. Now, that, that's not because he doesn't know what's going on. In fact, he knows full well what's going to happen. In fact, it, a, a few uh, just a while back, Mark tells us that at one point, Jesus is teaching his disciples and he says this. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, which refers to himself, he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, what Jesus is doing is he enjoys this beautiful meal at the house of Simon the leper. He's not oblivious to what's going on. I mean, this is not him just sort of, you know, this oblivious act of foolishness or, or blindness to what's going on. No, no, no. What he's doing here is very, very intentional. He's loving people. He, he's, he's, he's doing what he always does. He just cares for people and, and not, I mean, he, he loves all these people, not just the religious crowd. In fact, he has kind of not very much to do with the religious crowd. And he's not loving just the, the cool, hip, got it all together people, although he, he loves that crowd too. No, no, he's hanging out with Simon the leper. Simon the guy with a disease that nobody wants to go near him because it's that kind of a disease. Simon the guy with a reputation. I mean, that's who Jesus is hanging out with. And he's hanging out with him two days before his death. And he knows it. 
Two days before the most important, most pivotal event in human history. And what is Jesus doing? I mean, of all the things that he is doing, that he could be doing, Jesus is doing the most important thing. He's just loving people. So what does this tell us about Jesus? First of all, it tells us that it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, what kind of baggage you have, what kind of nickname people have given you. It doesn't matter. Jesus loves you. He wants a relationship with you. The good news of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it's not about being good enough. It's not about having everything together and and getting it all right. No, no, no. It's the exact opposite. It's about grace. It's about Jesus meeting you wherever you are. Jesus, by his goodness, just coming along. It's not based on your merit, on your endless hard work. It's not based on what others think of you or your standing in society. It's just grace. It's just love, which is the extreme exact opposite of what the religious leaders of the day were saying. And frankly, it's the extreme exact opposite of what our culture today says. Now, I mean, our culture today says, oh, you should be whatever it is you want to be without any pressure. But then, in a million subtle little ways, they say, as long as you buy these products and have these things and go on these trips and are this way and look this way and think this way and do this way. So really, the the cultural idols of our day are no different than the religious leaders of that day, but not Jesus. I mean, Jesus just comes, he says, look, I just love you and, and I just want this relationship with you. As you come to know me. Which begs this question. If we're the followers of Jesus. If we are. Identify ourselves as Christians. Literally as little Christs. Then, then shouldn't that be how we respond to? I mean when Jesus faces this incredible opposition. When these powerful men seek to destroy him. You know his response? His response is to go out. And to just love the people around him. And shouldn't that be how we also respond when there's pressure on us, when when powerful people oppose us? Not to write all sorts of nasty things or protest, but to simply love the people around us. You know, Nuala and I, we we went uh, uh, not long ago to see a movie called Belfast. This is a great little movie. It's well-written and engaging. It's a story of this family who lives in Belfast in the early 1970s when all the troubles were in Northern Ireland. And uh, there was this violence that comes into their community between the Protestants and the Catholics. And the movie is about this decision they have to make, whether they're going to stay and and live in the midst of the violence among the people that they love and have spent their whole life with, or if they're going to flee for the safety and the sake of their family. And, And it's brilliant. It's a great movie. But at one point, at one point, there's this one scene where, where the main character, this little boy, is sent to church, and in church... They have this this riveting scene where the preacher man, the the one person in the entire movie who is identified as very clearly, deeply religious. The preacher man stands up and with his eyes bulging out and with sweat running down his face and with spittle on his cheek, he gives this most hate-filled rant that you could possibly imagine. And it's just, it's so unlike anything that Jesus was about. And the question is, how, I mean, how would we as followers of Jesus counter that kind of a caricature? I mean, dozens of people in that theater, hundreds of people, maybe thousands in our city, hundreds of thousands across the nation have gone to that movie and have left 
either subconsciously or consciously being reaffirmed in this message that those who are deeply religious, those who are actively following Jesus are some of the most hate-filled, angry, ranting people possible. But how, how, do we, how do we counter that? I mean, do we protest the movie? It's a terrible idea. Do we write little things on our Instagram posts, our social media? I suppose. But the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus is to go to Simon the leper's home and to just love him, to, to just hang out with him, have a good meal, to laugh and to talk and, and to be together. The way that we counter that kind of caricature is not to, to sort of hunker down in a sort of religious holy huddle, but rather to go out just to one or two people that we know that don't know Jesus and to go hiking with them, play on the baseball team, to have them over for a barbecue and to simply let them know that we love Jesus and that we care for them and that we love them. I mean, that, that's, that's what Jesus does. He goes to Simon's the place, he hangs out, he eats, eats great food and he loves them. Love. Love, that's Jesus' primary way. And that should be our primary way. It should be the main thing that we are known for. It should be what we're doing even two days before we know that we're going to die. That's what Jesus does. But, but while he's hanging out there, while he's just sharing this love with this, this guy and whoever else is hanging out there, the strangest thing happens. In fact, Mark, Mark tells us what happens. Here's what he says. Verse 3 again. He says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of me. So Jesus is at this party, it's all going good, and all of a sudden this controversy breaks out. This woman comes into the room where they're having the meal. Now, in the ancient world, the men and women ate in different rooms. So a woman wouldn't have come into the room unless she was bringing food or cleaning up or something like that. But this woman walks in, holding this bottle of perfume that everyone instantly recognizes is incredibly expensive. It's nard, which... We know came from India. It wasn't a local thing. It was incredibly hard to get. It was, they, said, they said, look, that, that bottle that she held was worth 300 denarii. In today's world, it would have been worth about fifty to $60,000. One bottle worth fifty dollars to $60,000. And she walks into Jesus. And Mark says she didn't just sort of open the top and put a few precious drops on his forehead. No, no. She breaks the thing and she pours the entire contents out on Jesus' head. Now, it was not unusual to, to anoint a guest like this, you know, someone special in your home, but not like this. I mean, what she did was crazy and was incredibly, incredibly extravagant. Plus, you have to understand that in that world, women didn't have jobs outside of the home. 
It wasn't like she'd gone out and earned fifty dollars or $60,000 to buy this. What she had was most likely an heirloom. It, it was her inheritance that had been passed down to her. And more than that, it was her insurance policy. If ever she fell on hard times, if, if, if her husband died or her family abandoned her, she could have sold that so she wouldn't end up in utter poverty. And instead, instead she pours the whole bottle out on Jesus' head. Not, not what she did was not only extremely extravagant, but it was incredibly costly for her, and it was utterly irreversible. It was an incredible act of devotion. But Jesus' disciples, the, the people in the room, they didn't see it that way. They saw it as an incredible waste of money. They said, you know, what she should have done is sold that bottle and given the money to the poor. But not Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus sees what she did as incredibly beautiful. In fact, he says this about what she said. In verse 8, he says this. She's done what she could. It's a beautiful statement. She did what she could. You see, the disciples who were criticizing Jesus, for them, it was all theory. It was somebody else's money. I mean, for them, it was like, well, if I'd been mine, I would have sold it and given the money to the poor. And I, I would have, I could have, I should have. It didn't matter. It wasn't theirs. It wasn't theory for her. It was real for her. It was hers. And she did what she could. She demonstrated her love and her devotion to Christ in an incredibly extravagant, costly, and irreversible way. That's deep devotion. You know, I I met with a friend of mine not long ago. Uh, He came to Christ later in life. He he came to Christ out of a, a very difficult background. And Jesus totally changed his life. But, you know, we met, he was a little bit discouraged. He, he kind of felt like, you know, I don't know, I'm not really accomplishing anything. I'm not really doing much. And so we just sat and had a coffee. And, you know, as we, as we talked, I just asked him about his life. I said, well, what's happening with your wife? And in the most gentle, most unassuming way, he just explained again some of the, some of the incredible health issues that she had and how he's sacrificing and all kinds of ways and how deeply he loved her. And I asked him about his grandson and he explained that, you know, his grandson had been bullied at school and how he'd gone and stood up for his grandson and, and just helped his grandson through what was a pretty tough situation for his grandson. And he shared how, again, in just the most unassuming way, we're just catching up, he just shared how he, he, he's uh, working with a small group of guys, just really small group of guys, but who are in this recovery ministry that he's involved in and how he's just walking with them and, and helping them get out of the same kind of addiction that was so destructive in his life. And he shared about a, a relationship that had been broken for most of his life and how he'd restarted that relationship and how he loved this person, even though it was not easy for him. And, you know, as we talked, I mean, he didn't put it in this many words, but really what he was doing was out of this deep, deep devotion to Christ. And, and it was all out of devotion. It, for him, nothing was theoretical. It wasn't, oh, I should love. And I should. No, no, no. It was him doing what he could in the place that God had put him. And it was so beautiful. It was so, so beautiful. And, you know, you will never hear him preach. He will likely never be in a place where he can give great sums of money to some charity. He will never lead some large philanthropic organization. Oh, but what he's doing is so so beautiful in Jesus' eyes. 
Because what he is doing is an act of devotion that is extravagant for him and, and costly for him and utterly irreversible. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Devotion. Devotion. This is what followers of Jesus do. You know, they, they, they do what they can. And again, not out of guilt, not out of obligation. This woman had no obligation whatsoever to do this for Jesus. But out of her devotion to him, out of the impact that, she, that he'd had on her life, she walks into this room against the customs of the day. In this very controversial way, she pours out her love and her devotion to Jesus. What does devotion look like for you? I mean, are you doing what you can? Or for you, is it mostly theoretical? You know, I mean, the, the church should be doing something. Or, or they should be doing something. Or, you know, if I had the kind of money they had, of course I would be doing something. Or down the road I will. I mean, after I get married or once kids grow up and move out of the house. Or, or, or finally when I retire. I mean, then I'm going to do something to show my devotion to Jesus. I mean, the giving of your life. The using of the talents and the gifts that God has given you. Maybe the resources. I mean, whatever it is, the question is, are you doing right now? Not in theory, but in real world, in practical ways. What is it that you are doing out of devotion to Jesus? Interestingly enough, the disciples, they, they don't see it. This incredible act of devotion, they can't see it. All they can see in their mind is a waste of money. Or, and Mark doesn't tell us, but maybe they do see it, and they're actually embarrassed by it. They're embarrassed that this woman who hasn't known Jesus anywhere as long as them would come in with such an extravagant gift. It puts their following of Jesus a little bit to, to shame, and they're embarrassed. And, and so, in response, they criticize her. They, they put her down. They, they say what she did is waste. Now, the fact of the matter is, in our world, very few people, either within the church or outside, have a lot of problem with religion in moderation. On the other hand, we celebrate in this world the excessiveness of lots of money, of great deals of power, of all kinds of sex, of all kinds of influence. We celebrate that. But if somebody shows, shows a deep devotion, an extravagant devotion to Jesus, Oh, we're, the world is so quick to criticize that, to look down on that. But the disciples, we as the disciples of Jesus, sometimes we fall into that same kind of temptation. Sometimes somebody, and sometimes people that we would least expect, do something that's extravagant and incredible devotion to Jesus. And sometimes, I mean, it makes us feel bad. We, we, our pride is hurt. We, we aren't doing that. We should have thought of that. We should have got the credit for doing something like that and to make ourselves feel better. To ease our wounded pride, we criticize. We put them down because if we can put them down, it brings us up and we feel better about ourselves. You know, we look at what they would have done, what others have done. We say, well, we wouldn't have wasted our money on something as dumb as that. Or we say, well, our theology is, I mean, their theology isn't quite right. They, they get the wrong theology. Or their emphasis is wrong. And we end up trying to feel better about ourselves by, by criticizing them. And sometimes it isn't even Christians that we're criticizing. I mean, sometimes, I mean, the people in our, in our city do 
fine things, good things, beautiful things. But because they're not us, we sometimes tempted to even criticize them, to look down on them, to think, well, what they're doing can't be that good because they're not followers of Jesus. But what they're doing is amazing and beautiful and wonderful things. But we feel bad, and so we try to take them down a notch. When Jesus' disciples do that to this lady, this unexpected person that they wouldn't have thought would do something that amazing, Jesus says to them, leave her alone. I mean, why are you being like that? You know, as Jesus' disciples, we should always be marked by humility. We have no idea whom God is going to work in and through. You know, when I, uh, I grew up going to a youth group, there was about 20, maybe 25 of us in that youth group through my teenage years. And when I look around that youth group, there was a few of us that were like right in the middle of it. We were like leading and being involved and planning. And we were, we were passionate about what was happening. And then there was a number of others that were like, they were in. They were coming along and doing what we we're doing and, and in for it. And then there was a few that were on the periphery. There was a few that I think their parents just made them go to youth. And one of those guys was a guy named John. Same name as me. And John, I mean, he just wasn't really that into it. But I remember one day, I remember one day walking into a room and there in the middle of the room was John standing with a bunch of youth and one or two leaders standing around him and they, just, they were just gently putting their hands on his back and they were praying for him. And whatever God was doing, it was profound. I mean, it was amazing. God was doing something incredible in John's life and on that night, John changed. And of all the people in our youth, he was the last guy that I would ever dreamed that God would do something like that. And John went on from there. I mean, he followed Jesus so faithfully. He became a, a pastor in a small town in central Alberta. And to this day, he so faithfully serves and follows Jesus. And I would have never guessed it. In fact, some of those people who were kind of at the center of all that ended up on the periphery or even abandoning the faith. But God, God chose the least likely person and has worked through him in powerful and beautiful ways all of these years. No one, no one in, the, in that early ch- of the disciples expected that of this woman. Uh, of all of people, that she would be the one to show such beautiful devotion to Jesus. And yet this is who God used to anoint Jesus for his burial. Because God knew, Jesus knew that he was going to end up dying a criminal's death. And criminals didn't get an anointment for burial. They got taken down off of a cross, thrown on the trash heap, or if they were fortunate enough, somebody would take them down and lay them in a a grave. And Jesus wasn't going to be uh, anointed for burial, as was the custom in that day, by anyone else except this woman. Because even the women who came afterwards to anoint him, they arrived too late, because by then he'd been risen from the grave. The fact of the matter is that Jesus uses this lady in her deep devotion For God uses this lady in this deep devotion to to anoint Jesus for his burial. As followers of Jesus, let's make sure that we are humble, that we are humble. Let's remember that God works through all kinds of people, people that you would never even expect or dream of, and that nothing is impossible for him. (coughs) Jesus calls us to be humble. The other thing that we need to notice is when Jesus rebukes his disciples, he says this, verse 7, he says this, for you always have the poor with you, And whatever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Now, this passage is sometimes mistakenly understood by Christians, by followers of Jesus, as Jesus saying this, 
look, don't waste a lot of time caring for the poor. It's going to be kind of you know, ineffective and, and pointless because there will always be poor people. If that's your understanding of what this passage is saying, then you're misunderstanding it. That, that is the wrong interpretation of this passage. And there are a number of reasons why. Number one, Jesus says this while he's sitting in the house of Simon, the leper, one of the most outcasts in the entire society. Secondly, Jesus' teachings on caring for the needy and the poor are unequivocally clear throughout the scriptures. I mean, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about it numerous times. When he meets the rich young ruler who's done everything right and has done all the things, he says, what's the one thing I still need to do? He says, sell everything, give it to the poor, follow me. And then even at the end, near the end of Matthew, Jesus tells this story of the judgment day when the the nations stand before God and he judges them based on how they've cared for the least of these. Jesus' teaching on this is, is so clear. What Jesus is talking about here is not withdrawing from the poor, not caring for them. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He's talking about us being present among them. Jesus is explaining that as his disciples, that we as his disciples, because we're his disciples, will always be in close proximity to the poor and needy. It's who we are. It's what we're called to do. That's why he says that we will be able to care for them whenever we want. You see, as disciples of Jesus, we need to have presence. We're called to be present in the city around us. We're called to be present among the poor and the needy. As a church, let's continually be looking for places where we can be present in our city, present among the poor and needy, rubbing shoulders with them, caring for them, and loving them because that's Jesus' expectation for us. This lady had a unique opportunity to to care for Jesus in that way, but this is how we're called to be, always among the poor and needy, always loving them in Jesus' name. Jesus ends his, his, his words to his disciples by saying this in verse 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world what she has done will be told in memory of her. That's what's happening right now in this part of the world. We're telling what Jesus did there. Now, what we do out of devotion for Jesus, what we do as followers of Jesus in this city, in this time, it's probably never going to be, I'm sure will never be proclaimed all over the world. But the fact of the matter is, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows, what we do, how we live for Jesus should be part of the proclamation of the gospel. You know, the people in this city should understand what it means to be a a follower of Jesus, not based on what they see on their social media feed or what they see in the media, but based on the fact that they know and have met and rub shoulders with and hang out with people like you and me who know Jesus. So, when across their social media feed or on media comes a, 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 a story about so-called Christians who are hating and condemning and angry and bigoted, when they see that, they should be like, yeah, but we know our neighbors. We hang out with our neighbors. We play baseball with our neighbors and share a glass of wine with them. And they're followers of Jesus And they're not like my social media feed. They're not like whoever these people are. They love us. They're good people. They care deeply. That's how the people in our city, in Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows, that's how they should know what 
people who follow Jesus are like. And, and they should see that we are a people who are committed to caring for the poor and the needy in our city. And that we do it humbly. That, that it's not us thinking like, oh, we're somehow better than everyone else because we're caring for the poor and needy. Because the fact of the matter is, in our city, there are many who are not followers of Jesus who very faithfully care for the poor and the needy in our city. Nevertheless, they should see that we do it long-term because of this love that we have because of what Jesus has done in our lives. And they should know that we're humble. We've got to be humble. That, that when they do good things, we celebrate the good things they do. We come alongside and partner with them. That we, that we too are doing good things because of what Jesus has done in our lives. But when we're humble, that, uh, that kind of attitude opens up the kind of opportunity for us to share, and to love, and to, to have genuine relationships with Jesus. And may they find, may they find that we are deeply devoted to Jesus. May they say, oh, they aren't just talking sentimental talk about love and posting nice things. It's fine. But may they say, but we know that they love people. We know it because we've experienced their love, because we've seen it, and that we've seen that they're acting out of a devotion to Jesus that is extravagant and that is costly and that is irreversible. May they say, these people, they really mean what they say when it comes to following Jesus. You see, this is our testimony. But what we do is we imitate Jesus. As we, as we follow him, we'll, we'll never be proclaimed throughout the world, but by God's grace, as we live it out in the world around us, may it be proclaimed in this city, in Maple Ridge, Pitt Meadows. Here's how this opening section of the, of the passion of Jesus ends. Verses 10 and 11. It says this, Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray them. Judas, Judas doesn't get it. Well, this woman is sacrificing greatly out of great devotion to Jesus. Judas is sacrificing Jesus for a few coins. You know, on, on, on that day, in the city of Jerusalem, thousands of Jewish people were going out and buying a sacrificial lamb to prepare for the Passover. And on that day, the chief priests, the, the top religious leaders, they also bought a sacrificial lamb. They bought access to Jesus so that they could murder him. And the next day, many of, again, thousands of those Jewish people would present that sacrificial lamb to the priests to be prepared and to be sacrificed on their behalf. And the next day, Judas is going to lead the chief priest to Jesus, that they might arrest him and murder him. In one of the most bitter verses in all of the book of Mark, it says that when Judas arrived at, to the chief priests and told him that he was willing to betray Jesus, that they rejoiced. They were glad. They, they were filled with joy. Because in this city, teeming with 250,000 or more people, with no idea who Jesus was or where he would be, one of his own disciples would now come and betray them, him to them at the most opportune time so they could murder him. It's so sad. It's so evil. It's so wrong on, on so, so many levels. And yet, here's what we know. That even though these men of their own volition willingly chose the most evil and wicked of all things to do, 
that God in his sovereignty used those very things to accomplish what could be done in no other way than through the death of Jesus Christ. It was all part of God's sovereign plan worked out for us. This is what we as Jesus' disciples know, and it's what we believe to be true. The coming suffering and death of Jesus was all part of God's providence. This is what we're going to look at in the days to come, in the weeks to come, as we examine Jesus' suffering. We're going to see both this incredible love and also the providence of God as he works out his plan for, all of, all, all for salvation for all who long for it. Would you bow your heads for me, with me, rather, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you on this day as your people called to follow you, God, as this, as this people who have been touched and changed and transformed because of what Jesus has done. And God, we start on this journey from now until Easter of examining the passion of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus. And God, as we do, may we see both the incredible price that he paid for us, but Father, may we be immersed in his love. May we be immersed in the character and the beauty of who Jesus is and what he did. And Father, may we as his disciples, may we follow in his footsteps. Father, may we be people of love. May we be people of devotion, people of, of humility, and, and, and Father, people uh, who love the, the poor and, and who live in our lives before you. May we walk so humbly, God, because that's what Jesus did. That's what he calls us to do. Oh, God, may we live our lives as a testimony before our city, before our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors. So people might say, something different. Those people have something. And Father, may you receive the glory. May you be glorified. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.